Good morning, everybody. Welcome to CSIS. My name is Sarah Ladislaw. I'm Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy and National Security Program here. We are delighted to have all of you here today. Uh, and just as a reminder, as is my duty to say, uh, we care about your safety and security here at CSIS. So if an alarm goes off, I will be your security captain. We will help you evacuate the building. But please just keep in mind where the emergency exits are so that you can be uh, aware of that. We don't anticipate anything happening, but we do take your uh, security very seriously. It is my great pleasure to have uh, with us uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski and uh, Senator Joe Manchin. Joe, I think, this is, Senator, this is your first time uh, at CSIS, I believe. I and believe it's first yeah. time in this room, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and you've, yeah. you've been here before, Senator We have Murkowski. had many Arctic conversations Many Arctic here, conversations. And they've been, been great. So it's good to be back. Thank you. Great, great. Thank you for being here. So one of the reasons why we wanted to have this conversation today in particular is CSIS, the energy program, has been spending the last couple of years doing a project called Energy in America. And it's really meant to capture the way in which the strategic landscape for energy in the United States has changed so fundamentally over the last decade. Not only are we producing more in the way of oil and gas resources, largest hydrocarbon producer in the world, but we've also dropped the cost of renewable energy technologies. And this is not just some abstract sort of you know, policy conversation. It's something that's changing the social and economic fabric of people around the country. And so we've spent a lot of time talking with people in different parts of the country about how the energy landscape is changing. What does it mean for them in terms of their own expectations of the energy sector? Do they rely on it for economic growth? How do they think about uh, US energy security? How do we think about it in the context of global climate change and the need to manage those challenges? And so we've done a couple of different reports on the topic. And, and quite frankly, what we've realized is that the US has a really advantaged position across the board on energy. We're really uh, in, a, in a very positive position. It doesn't really detach us from the global community in ways that people you know, often talk about. We're not energy independent necessarily, but we certainly have a lot more options on the table. And then when it comes to creating economic development out of energy resources, we found that there's kind of a mixed story. You know, in places where you produce a lot of oil and gas or, or coal resources, depending on how those communities reinvest those resources and think about it as part of their broader economic development strategy, sometimes that goes well, sometimes it doesn't go well. Um, in places where we've talked a good game about creating innovation clusters or manufacturing centers, sometimes that's gone well, sometimes it's not gone so well. And so what we wanted to do was sort of tie together um, the experiences that, that you all bring to the table as being from Alaska and West Virginia and, and thinking about you know, uh, uh, what your job is as it relates to what your constituency hopes to see for energy for the United States with some of these bigger and broader you know, challenges uh, and opportunities that, that are part of your job as the leadership of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. So hopefully we'll have a good conversation about some of those things. But I wanted to start where I just started, which is if you could each share a little bit about what is the perspective from Alaska and West Virginia with regard to energy? Is it one of pessimism? Is it one of optimism? How do people in, in your states and your constituencies talk to you about energy when, uh, when you talk with them? Maybe we'll start with you, Jeremy. Well, energy is its kind of like Toys R Us. Energy R Us in Alaska. Um, it is just such a, a focal part of our economy, of certainly our state's budget. We're a state, 85, some 85% 85 of our state's budget comes from oil. Mm. Think about what that means in terms of, of dependency on, on one resource. Now having said that, 
Uh, we've seen the price of oil go down. We've seen production um, in the older fields uh, in, in the North Slope uh, go down. And so that has had substantial impact on, on our state's budget. It's, it's put our governor and his administration in, in a pretty tight space. Uh, so there's pessimism there, but you have great optimism with what is happening uh, in terms of exploration and production on the, uh, in the National Petroleum Reserve, uh, in the 2017 uh, tax, uh, tax bill. We included the provision that will allow us to advance in the 1002 area uh, of ANWR. So those uh, lease sales will, will be coming up in the near future. So there's a level of, of optimism there. But there's also a recognition in, in Alaska that as, as significant as this oil resource is to us, we are still uh, the state that has if not the highest energy costs in the country, maybe the second highest, mm -hmm. because, because our communities are so remote. We're not part of an energy infrastructure grid, so to speak. And so it's required us to really be innovative and, and push out in areas that you might not expect when it comes to renewable energy resources. We have been leading the country, and some would say leading the world, in terms of microgrids You've got a small community of, say, 500 people. There's no, there's no uh, natural gas pipeline that's getting to you. The oil comes to you, yes, but it's produced, it's, it's produced up north. It's shipped down to uh, the lower 48, and then it's sent back to Alaska so that by the time it gets to your community on the, on the Yukon River, you're paying eight, nine, 10 bucks a gallon. That's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. These communities are diesel generated communities. So getting themselves off that and moving towards what they have on site is really kind of an innovative, pioneering, exciting place for them to be. Mm -hmm. So there's a mm -hmm. level of optimism mm -hmm. in that space. So a little bit of a mixed bag. Yeah. What about West Virginia? Well, first of all, who all stayed up watching that game last night? I didn't finish the That's end why of it. everyone looks a little I'm tired. I'm looking all the sleepy eyes, I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, go Nats. Anyway, uh, West Virginia, we've had a transformation, if you will. Of course, we've been a leading energy producer for, for a century or more. And uh, coal has been abundant, and the quality of coal has been excellent in West Virginia. And uh, so we, I look back at it, because I grew up uh, right in the coal fields in, in north central West Virginia had four of the largest mines in the world right around me and everybody I knew worked there and my family depended on it uh, because my grandfather's a grocery store, my dad had a little furniture store and basically it was the economy that kept all of us going. Uh, we always rode the highs and lows. The energy markets were always high, depending on what the world market was and what the demand and, and, and the national market was for steam coal and for metallurgical because we were blessed with two high quality steam and metallurgical coal. Uh, when I was governor, fast, fast forward clear up to the 25, 2010 era, uh, we were still producing 150 million tons of coal. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, it was, they were always in the 200 million tons a year. So it, we pretty much to depend on that. The, the economy and the market was based around that. Uh, we're down, we went down to as low as 76 million tons just recently uh, under the Obama administration. And uh, then we're back about 90, 91 million tons. Mm -hmm. People are coming to realize it's, it's, it's not just all policy and it's not because that they thought that, that 
in my state, that the Democrats were in revenge trying to shut him down for fossil. Uh, but it was market. Uh, we were also blessed with an ocean of energy under us with all the natural gas we have. We have the Marcellus Utica. Now we have the Rogersville, which is much deeper, but we have an ocean of wet properties, which is a butane, propane, and ethane. What we haven't seen from gas, uh, the people in West Virginia, is the job, the opportunities. The opportunities that came with coal was you were either working in the coal mine, you were basically supplying for that, whether it, whether it be a cable shop, battery shop, uh, machine shop. There was an off six or seven, eight jobs went with every one job on the front line mining coal. So it was a tremendous economic boom. Uh, and then uh, when things had changed and uh, the past previous administration was putting more efforts towards uh, renewables, we have one of the largest wind farms east of the Mississippi. People would never believe that. In West Virginia, Mount Storm, uh, 17 acres of a wind farm on top. So we're for everything. We're all in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We just don't see the bump as far as employment that had gone with coal, so they're having a hard time with that. Mm -hmm. So what we're hoping for, we, have, we had a tremendous, uh, during the World War II and all that, and up to the last 20 years, petrochemical industry. The Ohio River, uh, the Kanawha River, which is one of the most uh, next to the southwest, uh, concentration of petrochemical plants. And they could be revitalized. I mean, they're down to maybe 50% of a footprint of what they had. If we could use the wet properties that we have coming out, so I keep talking to people about we have a chance to, to reinvigorate our, our manufacturing base, uh, but we have to have crackers, we have to be, petrochemical has to come back so we could be able to use this raw product. Uh, and with that, we'll talk about China's intervention into West Virginia trying to buy up every ounce of wet property to take it back to China to keep us out of the economic market. That's exactly what they're doing. So we're watching that very carefully. Anyway, we'll get into that, but West Virginia, uh, has been blessed, but still yet we're challenged. Uh, and uh, our terrain uh, makes it a little bit more challenging too, but mm -hmm. we're beautiful. <laughs> we certainly, especially and this time of year. So we hope you come and enjoy us. Yeah. yeah. So I want to go. I want to move. For, and we will. We will get into sort of China in a little bit. But one of the things I want to move to is, you know, the for as long as I've been doing this, right, the mantras around energy are affordable, reliable, and clean, right? But over the last, you know, 10 years or so, there's been sort of different requirements put on the energy sector, either, you know, a creator of jobs, as we just, you know, heard you talk about, or, you know, help save the planet, right? We've got sort of this climate change uh, uh, challenge as well. I was just wondering, Senator Murkowski, if maybe you would reflect on how things have changed under the period of time you've been in the leadership of Senate, uh, the Energy and Natural Resource Committee, on like, what are we asking the energy sector to deliver for the United States, you know, not just for Alaska, but, but in terms of our strategic priorities? I don't know if you recall, it was a few years ago now, um, we did our Energy 2020, our <laughs> blueprint uh, for, for the country. And, uh, and, and my blueprint had five components um, within the energy space. It was affordable, accessible, clean, diverse, and secure. And uh, that was, yeah, that was probably about 10 years ago that we laid that blueprint down. Um, those five words, I think, are still uh, key today, but perhaps what you're seeing is greater emphasis on clean over affordable. Um, as, you, as you talk uh, about those who are trying to advance something like a, like a Green New Deal, that it has to be uh, clean, 
at the expense of affordability. Well, that doesn't work in a state like mine, again, where you're paying eight, nine, ten bucks uh, a gallon. I, you know, it, it, it can't continue to go up because then it's not accessible at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you have seen a, a, a shift and a greater focus on, on uh, clean and renewable, um, but also the resilience side. And this kind of factors into what, what Senator Manchin and his constituents in, in, uh, in West Virginia have seen. But making sure that we have this level of, of resilience. People, people want to make sure that, yes, their energy is affordable, but they also expect it to be there mm -hmm. on demand. Mm -hmm. and, and so when we are made less resilient, uh, whether it is because of, of severe weather events or it's because you've taken offline um, some of your more um, uh, baseline, just kind of chugging away every single day, the, the coal facilities out there, and, and, and moved it towards uh, renewables that are not baseline power, uh, what that presents in terms of, of, of uncertainty mm -hmm. to the consumer. And so I think that's much of what we've seen with, with the shift. Being in a situation where we are now, and you started this out in your introductory comments, where it might not be energy independence, but when you are the, the number one producer of, of oil and natural gas in the world, it gives you a, a space and a position, certainly from an energy security position, um, where, where we can play a much greater role than we ever have before, mm -hmm. that is also a factor that is, is new. It was, it's, it's just been in this past decade that we have gone from, uh, from a nation that was building import terminals for LNG to now figuring out how can we move our LNG to export more rapidly. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot that has changed. It's come about in a very short period of time, um, but we are, we're, we're truly enviable mm -hmm. uh, around the world because of that part of it. Senator Manchin, how have you seen some of the, the, the challenges or the sort of strategic imperative change for the energy sector as well? Well, uh, you know, the thing I was going to say, and I should have said it earlier, but uh, if, if you're in my state who's been a tremendous producer of energy for this country for every war we've ever had and, uh, and for the industrial might that we have now and, 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 and the role that coal has played. Uh, people in West Virginia and most families have been intertwined in the coal industry one way or another. A grandfather worked in the mines, an uncle and aunt, mom, dad, somebody worked and related to the mine. Uh, they feel like the returning Vietnam veteran. We've done everything our country's asked us to do and you left us behind. Now you don't like us. We're not clean enough. We're not green enough. We're not good enough. So just throw them away. And we can't do that in America. So whatever traditional where the oil this Alaska is producing, and if we move away and we're not demanding as much oil and you might not be producing much another decade or two decades from now, you can't leave Alaskans behind for the work they've done for us unless you give them other opportunities. Well, that's where your tax policies come in. Mm -hmm. If we're moving and shifting towards new maturing and new, uh, new uh, opportunities in the energy markets, if you will, the realm, then you have to make sure the incentives are going to the states that had the energy reliance that we've depended upon. Mm -hmm. So if West Virginians would have, 
and let's say 2.9.2.10.2.11 says, okay, we're shifting. A lot of tax credits are going to renewables, but you have to use the tax credits in the states that lost the energy jobs, traditional energy jobs. There would have been no disruption, a political disruption at all. Mm -hmm. But it just flip-flopped everything in our state because that no one cared and they left them behind. I, I just think that in the next decade or two decades, we're all going to be energy producers. How the grid delivers, how net metering back, what we do, how energy gets into the system, we're all going to be mm -hmm. much different than what we see today. Mm -hmm. uh, what that's going to do, I really can't tell you because we have traditional base load plants. I just came back from Saudi Arabia. I saw what happened and could happen in disruption and how we uh, escaped and basically dodged a catastrophe, a worldwide catastrophe globally, economically. Uh, there were direct hits, uh, just uh, unbelievable how it was done, but they, were, they acted quick and got back online. So base load up until, what, the last 10 years mm -hmm. has been coal and nuclear, 24-7, mm -hmm. rain or shine. It's not anymore. We're depending on gas for base load. Gas can be disrupted a lot easier than coal and nuclear could be disrupted. So reliability, where are we? And when you talk to the Ramco people, I said, aren't you concerned about espionage here for someone to have all of these uh, pertinent information on your operation here to be able to pinpoint and hit with accuracy? And he looked at me and he says, Google Maps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He says, look how accurate Google Maps are. So now we're looking at an energy committee. Wait a minute, how vulnerable are we with our strategic that we can get right off of the internet? So we've got to make sure that we're doing everything we can to protect what we have. But the base load is going to be delivered differently. Mm -hmm. that, does, that, does that lessen our reliability? Uh, that's something that we have yeah. to look at. And the grid, is the grid going to be modernized enough to be able to handle, to be able to handle it? it. So I want to pick up on a couple things that came out in your comments. I mean, one is uh, is resilience, which I want to get back to in a second. But the other is uh, the the sort of strategic. You you both recognize that the energy system is changing pretty fundamentally, sure. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that there is this sort of imperative to deal with climate change and to sort of reduce emissions, but that we have to be able to watch how we well, do that. So let me just say one thing right here. First of all, for a committee to work, you have to have two members that like each other. <laughs> We like her. We have a big problem on that front. <laughs> we are good friends and we like each other. On top of that, that makes, we have both great staffs. We both have been blessed with good staffs. And it makes it easier for the staffs to work together if the members are working very close and they're good friends. So we have an unbelievable opportunity uh, for this next year with this Congress we're in to really make something happen, yeah. to get a comprehensive energy that has not meeting the, I mean, meeting the needs that we have but also looking at the future. And that's, that's a tremendous opportunity we all should be taking advantage of. But can you imagine when on my side of the aisle they thought Manchin's going to be the ranking member? With Murkowski. Woo. Mr. Cole, Ms. Oil. That was a tough What did pill. we start with? We started focusing on climate change. That was, well, a, that was the first thing. First climate, first climate change meeting that we had, uh, hearing, was on, in seven years. And there's no one in West Virginia wants to breathe dirty air or drink dirty water. I mean, we're all for climate change. We know it's happening. We know that we're responsible and we can do better. Uh, but with that, uh, I'm for, I've said this, I'm for innovation, not elimination. Because elimination is not going to work. It's not where the world's going. And if you think that that's going to change the world by us eliminating, they're going to follow us. Well, shoot yourself in the leg and see if I'll do it. 
<laughs> so, okay. uh, not so, going to happen. So you preempted my question, which is you guys have chosen to focus on innovation, right? Which right. is both a very bipartisan thing. We've seen lots of support for additional levels mm -hmm. of innovation. The question I have is, is innovation just in investing more in R&D enough today? Right, and I, so this is where I'd like to sort of bring in the idea of competition with China, competition with other players that are not just investing money in R&D, but they're organizing themselves around industrial strategies to compete in the energy sector. And so one of the questions I've had is, you, you guys, you, you have had a number of climate change hearings, you've had a number of hearings that have focused on innovation, I've been privileged to testify at a couple of them, and it was in they're, they're really good discussions about these serious questions. But it, is, it does strike me that we are having a conversation about you know, trying to innovate, to drop the cost of technologies, to make dealing with climate change easier, to make all of these issues that you've talked about, resilience and reliability, easier. But, but maybe what I'm concerned about is whether there's sort of the political will in Congress to sort of organize around being competitive in these spaces. So you've both done a lot on nuclear, you've both done a lot thinking about critical minerals and batteries. How are you, do you think that there's the appetite, whether it's through comprehensive legislation or through some other sort of initiative to be able to really put forward, not something that just sort of invests on the R&D side, but says, no, we'd actually really like to compete in these spaces and be competitive, or does our sort of, you know, adherence to a free market economy kind of idea kind of pull us back from having conversations like that? I don't think that innovation on its own is enough. You can have all kinds of great ideas in the basket, but if you can't, if you can't put them into implementation, if you can't modernize that grid to accommodate mm -hmm. what you have innovated, innovated um, if you can't translate it out mm -hmm. uh, to the consumer, then what you have are just a bunch of good ideas in the box. Mm -hmm. And so we have always, I think, um, performed well in the good ideas category. This is American ingenuity. We, we love to talk about it. We are great at it. But what we need to do better is to figure out how we facilitate it. We talk a lot about, in the ARPA-E space, how you get um, from the good ideas section past the, the, the valley of, of death where all good ideas go to die and into the true implementation. We have a ways to go with that, and some of it is our own regulation. Some of it is uh, those who would say, I don't care uh, what gains you have made in, in efficiencies, you're still dealing with a, a fossil-based um, energy source, and so I don't want you to move it anywhere mm -hmm. uh, in any way. And so you've got those naysayers that hold you back. So innovation on... Uh, on its own is, is not the, uh, the sole answer. It is, it is really working throughout the, the, full, uh, uh, the full panoply of, of how you uh, make these transformational um, uh, measures happen. But in terms of, of competition, I think this is where we, we have a lot of room to grow. Mm. And, and it's not just competition here within this country. It's making sure that we can help lead with, with other nations in cooperative partnerships. And, and nuclear is a good example. Uh, we used to own this space, mm -hmm. not so much anymore. 
uh, in terms of the manufacturing, in terms of the skilled workforce, and and you know we've we have seen what has happened to, to nuclear in this country. I'm seeking, we're seeking to revitalize this. We've got our NILA bill, the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act, uh, that I think can help us again in this competitive sense. But another thing that we have just recently introduced and is out there is what we call our strategic energy initiative mm -hmm. that will help uh, facilitate an opportunity, a role for some of our financing institutions, Export Import Bank, to, to help to help facilitate a project in another in another country. Right now, if you're if you're in the in the nuclear space in another country, the, the the entities that are out there that are helping are Russia and China. Not because Russia and China are so great; it's that they have state-run enterprises that are there to help make it happen. So we're not competing globally yeah. that way. And I think that there's an important space for us to step up as a country. Yeah. Senator Manchin, where do you see the opportunities where we can be competitive? Uh, not, not just relative to, to China, but certainly in technologies well, we lead, that we uh, want to promote. I mean, we, everything we're talking about, we have the EFFECT Act, we're all looking for innovation, we're looking for the next big, uh, the big, uh, the big bang, if you will. Uh, but the big bang is basically an energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. If you really want to make a difference, it's an efficiency. That's the low-hanging fruit. And they're telling me that if we were able to truly dedicate ourselves to the efficiency of how we're using what we've got, mm -hmm then we can continue to grow up through 2040 and not have that much more energy needed to come online basically because we're using it much smarter and much more efficiently. Yeah. Those are things we should be looking at, low-hanging fruit, and we have a hard time sometimes with some of our constituents mm -hmm. who say, oh, don't force me to do this. I don't want to have that regulation. I can't take this. Well, someone's got to push you somewhere, so that's where the carrot and stick comes in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you've got to be willing to use it. Mm -hmm. Incentives, you know, we have to use incentives for other countries. We can't. Uh, I've, I've been told that if we quit using, and, and let's say that our friends who are pushing a new green deal, if we quit using every drop of oil, every MCF of gas, and every lump of coal, you wouldn't change the environment 15%. Okay, now if you believe, uh, if you're trying to say it's all North American climate, not global climate, then that's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. with our, you know. But on the other hand, if you want to say, okay, how do I get India? to start using scrubbers, low NOx boilers, and bag houses for mercury, and, carbon ca and clear stream carbon capture and utilization. How do I get them to do that? Mm -hmm. Well, you give incentives to your on-trade and to, to your market for trading. Mm -hmm. uh, we incentivize them to do things, but if we're not willing to do that, you can't penalize them and say, they're gonna look at you and say, wait a minute, if I recall back at the turn of the 20th century, y'all used everything you had. You didn't care how you were using it. Yeah. You just basically energized your country to be the superpower of the world. Now you don't want me to have someone in rural India has never had electricity? You think my grandmother in 1930 cared where that energy came that she could flip on the switch and turn the lights on or have a washing machine for the first time or a refrigerator? Not at all. So we've got to put ourselves basically where they are today, mm -hmm. developing nations and what they're coming on and how do we help them? So really, so, please I, go ahead. I just want to um, add one more thing on the, the technology and the efficiency because I think it is it's an important um, part of the discussion because Senator Manchin is absolutely 100% right that we, we've got so much space to do more on the efficiency oh, side. Man. But we're so captivated with the next cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, how we're gonna, how we're gonna direct 
capture carbon from the air. That is cool. You know, how we're going cool. to, we're what we're going to be doing more with, with, with storage. The, we all want these great ideas so that we can say we did this. It is not sexy. It's not cool to, to like change out your light bulbs. Yeah. And yet, you know, we do that in, in a little town like Yakutat, Alaska, population just around 1,000, maybe a little bit less in the wintertime. And they're saving $70,000 a year. You say $70,000, that's not much. $70,000 is going to get you a teacher yeah. in that community yeah. that they've saved just through simple things. And I think, I think sometimes we get so caught up that we have to do it it's it's the big you know it's the big bang theory. It is that. Well, what do we do with the utilities? Here's what I'm. Saying. Utility company basically has always had. Uh, I mean, they've had control of the grid. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they're putting a line into your house or into your business or your store or whatever. And now you're able to be more efficient, but also you're able to maybe have net metering back if you have enough excess energy. And they're going to say, well, we can't take that. We don't want to take that. No, I mean, it's no cost effective to us because we're to hit. I mean, somehow the grid system has to develop also yeah. to accept yeah. the ability for all of us to get in the market. So I want to ask you two more questions sort of based on that line of thinking. One is on this, this idea of resilience, which you brought up earlier. The, the very notion of what is energy security and what is resilience for the United States is something that I fear we're losing touch with, right? Because we typically think of uh, attacks on Abkhaz and Kuras, right? You know, big global oil supply shocks as being energy security. But more and more these days, we're seeing that the real threat to the delivery of energy to people is because we haven't properly maintained infrastructure, because we're not keeping up with the way that it's changing, because we're not thinking about the impacts of climate change on energy infrastructure in different places. How, how should we have a more honest conversation? I mean, especially in light of what's going on in California or the repeated sort of, you know, incidents that we see with hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico and on very critical energy infrastructure there. Well, Sarah, speaking on that, Rick yes. Perry. Rick Perry and I were governors together and we were become very good friends. And with him, uh, Secretary of Energy, we were talking and I, and I said, Rick, I said, we're vulnerable. My goodness. He says, Joe, I've seen it. I've seen the model of a class five hurricane coming up the Houston Channel. What it does, I mean, we're crippled as a country because we had our eggs in one basket. Yeah. So, of course, I'm pushing the North America, I mean, the uh, uh, Mid-Atlantic, uh, uh, we call it storage hub. Yeah. We could be a backup because of all the new energy in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, yeah. Kentucky even. And uh, if New York ever gets in the game at all to become part of that, it would be unbelievable what we could do there to give us energy security. Yeah. We can't even get that going. Yeah. But right now, I will say with President Trump has been very receptive to that. Rick Perry has pushed that very hard, so we're looking at that okay. and, and trying to be that backup that, 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 that we think the country needs, but also the ability to, to restart and re, reboot manufacturing. Yeah. That's what we really need. So there is, there is a system there, but I'll never forget T. Boone Pickens, God rest his soul. T. Boone one time came, we were talking, and he remember he was diversifying into wind. He was all about wind. He said, Joe, and he showed me the maps and all the wind. I said, T. Boone, nobody lives there. And he said, Joe, I'm well, the wind blows all the time. So he was trying to explain to me why he picked this quarter, but there was no way he had no grid system. Mm -hmm. yeah. Couldn't get it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but he put all his eggs in. He went after it. I've got to give him credit. Yeah. Part of the problem that we're dealing with right now, and, and your example of, of what we're seeing in California is just spot on. Until something bad happens, yeah, crisis. there's not a problem. There's not a problem. The yeah. lights come on. You know, I get my utility bills. It's not so bad. Um, we, we are 
we're lulled into this this kind of sense of complacency, and it's it's part of the it, it, you know it's a really hard part of this job to say wait a minute we have to be prepared for the what ifs, and it's 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 like trying to get funding for the bridge that you know is structurally not sound. Mm -hmm. But every day cars go over the bridge and every day the cars don't fall into the water. And you spend money to fix the bridge and people are like, for God's sakes, how come you're spending so much money to fix the bridge? It wasn't a problem. Well, it was a problem, but we saved you from yeah. having a problem. And we have, a, we have a real difficult time with this in the energy space because these investments, the modernization of the grid, dealing with capacity, as long as we are not interrupted, our lives are not disrupted, we're totally happy. And so I wanna, I, I'm, I'm the last one that wants us to be in a situation where we're seeing rolling brownouts because we haven't yeah. prepared. But I fear that that's, that's the direction that we go if we cannot get around some of, of the, the obstacles that we face. You know, there's, some, there's some things that you know, FERC right now is, is looking to PURPA reform, and yeah. I think that that's an important part of, of the discussion that goes on with the, with the really policy wonky people who think about things like this. We need them to be thinking about things like this. But it is, it is a real challenge for us to deal with an aging energy infrastructure and in many ways uh, an infrastructure that is, is uh, not sufficient to, to, meet, to meet the demands and the resiliency of today. Yeah. But Sir, we're keeping it together with Band-Aids. California is going to be a perfect example because I need to learn more about this. but. You know, they've taken all different types of precautions, thinking by, by having forced uh, electric shutdown, sure. trying to prevent the forest fires and all that. And what's going on there, basically, with the way they deliver power, the grid system, things of this sort, there's got to be a change. And I'm anxious to find out what the, uh, what the utilities in that, in that area and the government are going to come up with a recommendation. So from a committee, we're going to probably look at that very hard okay. to find out how that prevent, how we can prevent that because the weather patterns are changing. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a normal event now. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like certain rains and monsoons and floods and hurricanes and everything else is with the fire season in California with the poor people are enduring out there. It's climate change. Yeah. It's, the, I, I'll just add to that uh, with the situation in Alaska. We face some pretty significant fires. Um, this summer as yes, well, yeah. uh, hottest summer that we have seen. And uh, we had significant fires in an area of the state that supplies ba basically baseload hydropower mm -hmm. uh, that feeds into, into the one uh, energy grid that we have. That fire um, wrapped up mid-September that that power line that comes off of Bradley Lake is still down today mm -hmm. because of the damage to the transmission line. Mm -hmm. So all the way up, you're, you're gonna have impact throughout this fall and into the winter mm -hmm. for, for folks who are now going to be paying much more for their utility costs. But we just think about, oh, well, the fire is over, all is well. Yeah, right. 
turn back, you know, turn everything back on. Well, you can turn everything back on to a certain extent, um, and then if you look at your, your, your statements, you're going to realize how much more it's costing you because of what has happened. California, I think, mm -hmm. is, is in a frightening place right now in terms of not only the immediate situation with their loss of power, but then going forward, the damage to, to infrastructure and what that means to them as ratepayers. Yeah, yeah. So I want to ask one more question because you brought up FERC, which is just another, we don't have all day, so we're going to do make a targeted question here. In my observation, right, so FERC is basically in a really tough position because <clears throat> there's a lot going on at the state level, right? A lot of energy policy at the mm -hmm. state level, a lot of very aggressive and interesting energy policy at the state level that that adds additional sort of challenges to sort of organized markets in addition to all the ways that, you know, the energy system is changing just sort of, you know, on its own. Is FERC going to be able to deal with all of these issues itself or are they going to require legislative fixes at some point? Like, do you see a, 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 a role for Congress in sort of um, changing the strictures within which FERC operates, or do you think everything that's on their, their docket, so to speak, is going to be something they can handle? Because these are pretty profound changes in the way we've thought about, you know, dealing with, with electric power markets around the country. Well, let me just say that, first off, we can just get a full working FERC. It'll be a miracle. Yeah. So we're trying to get back up to mm -hmm. five members. We've had three for quite, quite some time, and we should have five. And, and we're going through a situation now where uh, there's two openings, and there's going to be a hearing, I think, next week Thanks. on one. The Republican, of course, the Democrats are saying that we've had a lady that's been teed up since January of last, uh, this past year, Allison Clements, uh, that's gone through all the traps, FBI and everything. She should be brought up, but hasn't been sent up, so Lisa can only deal with what she has in front of her, and we're trying to get that because that's the way the committee has moved. Uh, with that, yeah, you're going to have to, they're going to have to look at everything what their responsibilities. Before it used to be uh, PJM. I'm in the PJM system, which is the largest delivery, I think, in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and with that, we were always concerned about reliability. And we had rolling blackouts and brownouts because of the East Coast and demand that we would have there and the surges that would go on. And coal was always a base load. I mean, the coal plants start coming down exponentially and, and kind of left us kind of vulnerable. And at uh, what the Directio? Directio. That put us within what they said. Uh, how many uh, percentage of, I mean, it was very narrow of what we had margins to keep the grid energized. And that would have been a catastrophe for the whole East Coast PJM system. Uh, and then they start looking at it, uh, is FERC going to be going into it? Is reliability the number one thing? Or is it cost or cost and reliability, how they weigh this out? Mm -hmm. What comes online? What type of fuel they take off and bring on? Uh, and all the things, I mean, it's a much different market and what they're dealing with than what they ever did before. So I'm interested in finding out what, what pathway they're going to take and if it's going to take legislation to put a pathway for them. Mm -hmm. I do think that you have an agency that has so much more on their plate than they ever have and that many could have even anticipated. All the things that Joe has mentioned, um, uh, I mentioned PURPA reform, but think about it just from the perspective of cybersecurity. Oh, How do we wrap <laughs> our, Google. Our, our head around all of this? And, and, and that is also yeah. part of, of 
their consideration. So it is considerable. Um, I think we need to, from the, from the congressional perspective, from the legislative perspective, I think we need to be looking to see where we can help to facilitate uh, where legislation may be required. Uh, I think that FERC, as it was established, was sound at the time, mm -hmm. but a lot has changed. So making sure that they have the level of expertise. Um, this is, these types of reviews are not for the timid. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody who's looking for the easy, cushy job, man. Uh, what they have to go through um, uh, from a regulatory review perspective is, is really pretty intense. So mm -hmm. let's give them the resources, as, as Joe mentions. They need a, a full complement. Um, uh, we do have the hearing coming up on Mr. Danley next week, mm -hmm. um, but we still haven't gotten a name out of the White House uh, uh, when, when um, uh, Cheryl LaFleur uh, stepped down in August and opened that up, but it's like, okay, we can't have a hearing on somebody until <laughs> you, you are sent to us from the White House. So yeah. we're, we're continuing to wait on that. But it, it, is, it is such an important regulatory agency mm -hmm. that I look at it with great frustration that we can't get these folks moved through more quickly. Yeah. Um, when Kevin McIntyre uh, uh, passed tragically um, last year, we we thought, okay, we're we're gonna. This is this is a, a Republican slot. We're gonna see this moved quickly. really quickly, yeah. and it was a nine-month wait yeah. to get through that process. That's yeah. frustrating from our perspective, but even more so from, um, yeah, from the but other you know, side. When you look at the pipelines and all that, we can't get pipelines built right mm -hmm. now. My state's been shut down from all the Marcellus and Utica shell right now coming out because we were going to hopefully supply, uh, I think it was three BCF a day or some more than that maybe, but anyway into that line that would have gone down and energized North Carolina, South Carolina, the bases we had in the industry and things going on in South Carolina. Jim Clyburn was fighting for it. Yeah. We had everybody working for it. And it, I've come to the realization, I tell people, I said, this, people aren't opposed to the pipeline. They're opposed to, to what's in the pipeline, how it gets there. And that's what we're dealing with. And we've got to come to realization, you know, if we're going to have a country that's going to be the superpower and the model for the whole world and the hope of the world, and we're going to be, be able to energize and keep this economy moving, you've got to have the energy. Yeah. And we've got to use it in the most efficient way and move it in the most efficient way. Just trying to get in the power line. Try to get a 500 kV or 750. Try to, you know, and so anything I'm asking my energy friends, I says, start thinking about sharing the revenue a little bit on transmission. Start thinking about sharing the revenue a little bit on the pipeline transmission. Hmm. You do that with the states and the counties and all that, you'll have no problem. No problem at all. So I want to ask one more question, and then we've got a huge audience here, so I just want to take a couple questions from the audience sure. for you as well. But um, so uh, next year is going to be a busy year. Uh, yeah. It's going to be a very interesting year, year. for a whole host of <laughs> busy. I can't oh, say good. Uh, good. I'm just, <laughs> I'll go with busy for right now. Uh, 
But but you, you've both expressed optimism and the potential to you know get some sort of you know energy legislation sure. package mm -hmm. you know passed. You're right. You guys are sort of on ducks. You know you're you're bipartisan. You like each other. The committee functions. We it work. works well. Yeah. That's yeah, nice. I, I'm a little more of a pessimist. Like I tend to think that you know it's going to be hard for us to put together the views that we have in Congress into some sort of meaningful legislation. I I have a lot more hope that we're going to see a lot of energy policy moving at the state level. It's going to be really hard for us at the federal level to just keep up with it. Why am I wrong? And why, why are you guys hopeful that that's going to I'll tell you why you're pass. wrong, Sarah. <laughs> Remember the beginning of the year. Longest government shutdown that we had had, 35 days. What happened legislatively during those 35 days when we were supposed to be in such an incredible state of dysfunction we couldn't, even, we couldn't even get in the building together. What we did is we passed probably the most significant land and water conservation yeah. package that, that we have seen as a country in a decade. Mm -hmm. We took 120 some odd bills, land and water bills and conservation related measures that had gone through committee process. And when I say committee process, I mean committee process over a period of years. And we, we, we worked through all of the things that were bogging particular things down. We, we made sure that we had good input from Republicans and from Democrats, Democrats, from urban, from rural. We built this package that moved through a, 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 a Senate that was supposedly in lockdown mode. 80, 80, Not, hey, hate to correct you, but it was 85, oh, 85, 85 votes, 85 to 12. Um, and, and we not only moved it through the Senate mm -hmm. on that strong bipartisan vote, but then we sent it over to the House. We all know that the House gets up in the morning to spit in the coffee of the senators. And the House just changed. And, <laughs> and, and the House looked at it. But the House just changed because the Democrats just took control of the they House. Had just, they had every reason, reason, to, kill every reason every to reason to say, well, wait a minute. We want to put our stamp on it. And they didn't change a comma. Chairman they Hall, took it was up. Unbelievable. He was, he was unbelievable, unbelievable in, in terms of the level so of cooperation. But it passed out uh, 366 affirmative votes. It's then signed into law. All of the, you know, we're not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Everybody and their mother wanted to take credit for passing into law these significant bills. And we, we were able to do it because we were ready. We had worked through a level of process in a strong and a bipartisan way. And then when there was vacancy, the leader looks around and says, what do we got? Do we have anything out there that could possibly be bipartisan? I'm like, I'm in the back. I got 120 bills. I'm ready to roll. And you're given the opportunity and you go. But you can't do that if you haven't worked it cooperatively. And this is where Joe's comment is, is just so important. Because we've taken the perspective in the committee that things are only going to be enduring if we've worked them together. Mm -hmm. We can move things, as a Republican chairman, I can move things through committee if I just want to strong arm it. Mm -hmm. But I don't have any guarantee of success on the floor. Uh, and I don't have any guarantee of success that it will endure beyond the Republican majority. Sure. So why not try to build something that 
is good for everybody, Republicans and Democrats, and will be enduring policy that everybody can rely on. That's the approach that we There's take no in appetite our committee. For, there's no appetite for a fight. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. So if he comes out, and if we're not in sync on this, and it comes out, her having the majority, if I had the majority and we came out on one side or the other, then you have to defend it and fight it on the floor. When you have something that's so agreed upon, and we had this worked out, and they had something that said, we shouldn't have much much pushback. Let's go. Yeah. And we think we'll be ready for the for the energy bill also. So. Well, if the recipe is a chaotic environment through which you can, you know, push a couple big bills, I think you might get your. I think you might get that. Yeah. Uh, okay. We've got about. Not that we're going to ask for a chaotic no, environment. No. 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 I think it just might be delivered to us. Perhaps. So. Yeah. That's yeah. a that's a pretty solid bet. Okay. We're going to take three questions really quickly because I think we only have about five minutes, and then you can answer them quickly. We'll go one. Two, three. So I'm not. Oh, well, hold on. So yeah. So I'm not accused of room bias. <laughs> Hi there. Um, Allison Johnson. I work for DOE's Water Power Technologies Office. Um, I have a question for Senator Murkowski in particular. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts. I'm sure you do about how R&D programs can responsibly work with communities with high energy costs. Mm. That's a great question. Well, it's a great question. You want me to answer? Let me, can I take all okay. three just because sure, we'll sure, get sure. through it faster than that right. and I don't want to disabuse your schedule. Where was the hand here that I called on? Right there. Sure. Hi, Paul Murphy, MEIC. Um, first, thank you so much for the comments. Maybe you could come back in another two months and do this again. This was just fantastic. <laughs> we'll be um, here. But uh, Senator Murkowski, you mentioned the Strategic uh, Energy Initiative. Do we also have to look at maybe the OECD rules that sort of bind the OECD countries and say we all won't compete on financing when the Russians and the Chinese aren't part of the OECD rules? And then a lot of countries are also asking for equity, and we really don't have a good vehicle. DFC really doesn't have enough money on the equity side. Other countries have sovereign wealth funds. We don't in the United States, and that's probably a bridge too far, but do we need to be more aggressive maybe on the equity side to be able to offer something from the U.S. government in that respect beyond just the debt that we have through U.S. Exum? Thank you. Good set of questions. And who is it on this side? There you go. Uh, okay. Peter Sumner, Capital Intel. Um, Senator Manchin, you said you just got back from Saudi Arabia and the Ramco mm -hmm. and the strike, and also to Senator Markowski, who's been very closely monitoring the strategic petroleum reserves. Iraq is going through meltdown. We've had hundreds killed in protests. This is the fourth largest producer of energy in the world, an oil producer, and it seems like everybody's sort of missing the ball. It would you know, be great to have a comment from you, sir. Okay. So let me, let me speak to, to the first question here about how uh, within the DOE space, um, we can be working with these communities that have high costs. Uh, you've, you've just kind of thrown the softball up to me because uh, I was out in a coastal fishing community, uh, Cordova, Alaska, population couple thousand, uh, where working with uh, Department of Energy, working with our national labs, what they have done as a community to, to, to tap into uh, uh, the storage uh, component of their small hydro. Uh, so what, what you had was a community that is pretty innovative in this space. They're, they're small hydro, um, but, but they're a, a significant fishing community, so they have high energy needs during the summer, but again, low population. How do you, how do you not build uh, uh, an energy, a system that uh, 
is too big during the winter and not enough during the summer type of a thing. And so what they have, what they have done in partnership with the Department of Energy, with our partners at the National Labs, is really something that is being viewed not only as a, as a win for this community, but as a, an example, a prototype of, of how we can, again, structure these, these microgrids that are unique to, to that space, to those assets that are there. Um, this community is probably going to be 60 to 70% renewable um, throughout this whole winter, throughout, throughout the summer now, because of what they have been able to facilitate. Taking them off diesel power generation, which in this community is uh, it's probably, I don't know, four and a half, five, uh, five bucks a gallon. Um, but just to, just to share with you their level of innovation, um, this is a community that's not attached uh, to, to any road system. And uh, the mayor, who happens to also run the, the utility co-op, decided that he wants to, to get uh, EVs into the community of, of Cordova. Um, but he doesn't have any charging stations. Well, you're never going to get EVs there unless you put charging stations. So he's got four charging stations now. And uh, they've got their first Tesla in Cordova, Alaska. Go figure. Must have been a good fishing season. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's an example of a community that has, has branched out on their own to, to try to find how they are able to take the good ideas and implement them, but they're doing it in conjunction with uh, Department of Energy, who has been a fabulous partner mm -hmm. in this, and, and our national labs. NREL has been, been a great partner there, too. That's great. Great. We got that question about the um, uh, export financing and, and equity uh, stuff, and then also the one about, it's SPR question, but oil security in general, are we missing the boat just because we didn't see a price response? and seeing what's going on in Iraq right now. With Exxon Bank, we can't even, I mean, I think you all have been following that, right? We ain't got much going there. And we just have, uh, the administration is not committed to the Exxon Bank. I don't know what else to say. Well, you might it, be able it to is, talk, but it I is can't a, get it. what do we call it? Um, these, are, these are tools of, of, of statecraft. Uh, is how we refer to them in, in our um, strategic energy initiative that can and should be utilized mm -hmm. to assist, uh, whether it's XM or, or whether it's the, um, uh, the development uh, finance corporation. Yeah. yeah. Um, the new OPIC. The new OPIC. And so how, how we are able to structure them in such a way and a manner that they are effective, and your point about the equity piece. Is, is, is something that I think we need to, to look at critically. Um, because again, you can come in and say, we, we wanna be of help, but if, if we can't deliver because we don't have, you know, we don't have the sovereign wealth fund, for instance, um, we're kind of a lot of talk and, and not a lot of support. So how we're able to structure this. But the fact that we're even having the conversation about it now is an important um, But you know you could have offset on that. We, uh, the criticism we had on Exxon Bank when it was going through different discussions and committees and things of that sort and people that they thought, well, it was just basically 
uh, a supplement for the uh, Boeings of the world, if mm -hmm, you will. Mm -hmm. And they were against that. So we had an offset for small business. Mm -hmm. We can do an offset for the energy sector, mm -hmm. which weren't because we, they got to the point under the Obama administration, uh, they stopped financing for any uh, fossil. Uh, they wouldn't finance any fossils. So this type of stuff, right. I mean, some common sense, some responsibility and reasonability, but some offsets. What's going to be a 10 or 15 percent slice of that's going to go to the energy market? Gives us a big, big jump on that. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, on yours, on, on, on what you talked about with Iraq, I've got to be honest with you. We know what happened with Aramco, and we know what the world effect would have been on global, uh, global markets and the world economy. Uh, I think we've become so insulated with all the war that's been going on in the Middle East, East that somehow we're just discounting that. We're not putting that in the mix. And we've come on so strong now as a country as far as our energy uh, opportunities and availabilities and what we're producing now. And uh, we haven't seen the, 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 the ticker, if you will, change that much. Yeah. And you have Syria right now. It doesn't make sense to me that we're now into Syria trying to protect an area that doesn't have a great infrastructure has been deteriorated over a period of time and doesn't have ability to produce. If you want to dormant, and we can, we can do many things to make that area dormant right now, uh, at, rather than the risk of what we're involved in. I mean, I can't give you that. I, I don't know. It doesn't make, I can't, can't sit here and, and defend it. It makes sense. Uh, with Iraq, we thought we could stabilize that. Well, that hasn't worked out very well. With Iran, we know what we're doing there, the embargoes that we have going on, and the sanctions and all that. Uh, yeah. to, to give you is what's going to happen in the future, I can't. Yeah. I can say what we've discounted it to the same. We know that war is going to continue. We know that fighting, and they're not going to be producing what they had in the past under any type of stability because it's not going to be there for a while. I think one of the things that we have seen, you know, you asked the question earlier, you know, since I've been on the committee, and what have we seen in terms of this space, the fact that you had that, that strike, that takeout at Abcake. Um, what we have seen with the, uh, the, the disruption, the attacks in the, in the Straits of Hormoz, at any other point in time, this would have just sent the price of oil through the roof. Just, just the markets would have gone crazy. And, and yeah, we saw, we saw a little bit of a spike, and then things settled back down. And, in my view, this speaks to, to the role that the United States is now playing. Um, obviously, we still look to the Middle East for significant resource, but, but it, is, it is significant that we are, we, we are more insulated because of the production that we have. You mentioned the strategic petroleum uh, reserve, and we had a discussion uh, about a month ago now in, in committee about the SPR and whether or not the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is, is even necessary. I happen to believe it is necessary. I happen to believe that the beauty of an insurance policy is that you, you don't have to use it, but you don't want to, you don't want to erode it or get rid of it because then in the event that you do need it, um, you don't have that. So but we're not disciplined I, enough either. We're, we're, we're not awful. disciplined enough. We're using <laughs> it for everything that's what we're supposed to be used for. And we for. have to stop. We that. buy high and we, we take it back and sell that. it low. That's right. But you, well, have, you had something. You were just chomping at the bit to say something. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, no. The, the thing that I was going to say is that 
Right. It is yeah. shocking. So a shameless we're plug. Insulated. A shameless plug on our side. Senator Cornyn has asked to come talk about that here next week. Wants to talk mm. about US, sort of uh, oil security, the global market. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I think we are in a much better position. But it always matters. And you, you all know this, and this is one of the reasons why you support the SPR. But it's the context, right? You know, I mean, yes. in another point in time, or had that tropical storm that reversed into Texas been a hurricane that did, you know, hit that infrastructure, we have vulnerabilities. We're in a much better position, but we do have vulnerabilities, which is why and it's good to have, have insurance to be, We have to be aware, we have to be heads up, and we have to anticipate that stuff might happen. Yeah, right. And well, it's when we get too complacent yeah. and say, stuff hasn't happened in a long time, we don't need to worry about it. Yeah. That's a vulnerability. We haven't, that we we haven't done infrastructure on the storage yeah. where we yeah. keep it. Yeah. We haven't basically We're set modernizing up, it, I know, finally. a little bit. Yeah. But we haven't done anything on what's, what we think the level should be. And we, shouldn't, we should be disciplined enough or basically uh, prohibited from using it for budget gimmicks. Yeah. No, and agree. we've done all that. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, we could go on all day because this is a very interesting <laughs> discussion. There's a lot going on in this sector. And so we want to say thank you very much for spending your morning with thank us you. and thank sharing you. your thoughts. Very thank appreciate you. it.